0: from WNUR News, I'm Brendan Prizman. You're listening to the 6 o'clock news on WNUR 89.3 FM HD1, Evanston, Chicago. It's May 10th, 2023. Tonight, on WNUR News, Guardians of the Galaxy 3 hits theaters, a surprising resident of Northwestern's campus, and the Wildcats athletic teams kicking into high gear. Those stories, coming up tonight on WNUR News at 6. Thanks for tuning in. There's no local story tonight, so we will begin with arts and entertainment. This past Friday, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 premiered in theaters, the first installment from the franchise in six years. It's shown some success in the box office and garnered praise from critics and animal activist groups alike. Paul O'Connor has the story.
1: This past Friday witnessed the premiere of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, the third installment in the popular Marvel franchise. And it's clear that despite how much can change in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, good storytelling can make anything feel familiar. In terms of the box office, Guardians of the Galaxy Vol. 3 was a tentative success for Marvel, which has stumbled as of late. Released back in February of this year, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, fell short of what was needed to match its $200 million budget. And according to Variety, Ant-Man's flop came alongside other disappointing performances for the Marvel Universe, such as Thor back in 2022 and Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, also from 2022. Here's director Quentin Tarantino on the podcast Two Bears, One Cave. The entire representation of yeah. this era of movies right now. Right. And there's not really much room for for anything else. That is literally my problem. It's a problem of representation. (laughs) But with an opening weekend gross of 118 million, Guardians of the Galaxy Vol. 3 has emerged as one of Marvel's biggest blockbusters of this year. This past Monday afternoon at the AMC Evanston 12, some audience members took the time to talk to me about how Guardians of the Galaxy manages to stand out as something singular and unique. First, it's important to know that Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 comes 6 years after Volume 2, and Marvel released two pretty consequential films in between, Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame. Here's Ian, who attended the Monday matinee. I think it did a good job of, of blending both of being a sequel to the Guardians movies but also following on from the rest of it. So, uh, I I loved it. I mean, the Guardians movies are my favorite of the Marvel movies. This is really like the last one that I have any sort of emotional attachment to, so yeah. uh, James Gunn's perspective is, he's just such a unique filmmaker. Joe, another Monday afternoon attendee felt Guardians of the Galaxy actually told a more compelling story than either Endgame or Infinity War.
2: I enjoyed it. I, yeah. thought, I thought they put a lot of uh, a lot of effort into the narrative this time. The storyline was too thin like they yeah. they got carried away on all the special effects and that was really cool. I mean it was a, it was a neat thing to see. It was kind of a nice escape, visual escape. Mm-hmm. But this one had uh, this one had a kind of a depth of story that I thought actually made the movie a lot more
1: enjoyable. It is important to note that Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three was attempting an entirely different feat than Endgame, Infinity War, or even the preceding Guardians of the Galaxy volumes. Oh man, uh, the like animal rights message was really lovely. That was that was so sweet. What Ian's referring to is the film's heavy focus on Rocket, the raccoon member of the Guardians. A lot of screen time is spent unpacking Rocket's backstory, specifically the shocking cruelty he endured in his youth as a subject of animal testing and experimentation. The film's portrayal of Rocket's backstory even compelled PETA to release a statement, saying that the film, quote, tells a beautiful and compassionate story about testing on animals to a marvel sized audience, end quote.
3: It's okay, friend. Don't let them scare you.
1: For context, PETA is an animal rights activist group, somewhat infamous for spearheading shocking and sometimes upsetting awareness campaigns. But despite their infamy, they were quick to endorse much of the film's central message. They even awarded director James Gunn with a Not a Number Award, a nod to the numbers assigned to animals being tested on. It's clear that Rocket's storyline had a significant impact, on how audiences valued the film. In the Guardians movies, I feel like it has a lot more heart to it than the rest of them. I feel like there's, you know, the rest of them, it's, it's you kind of forget about it after it's over, but these sort of stick with you a little bit more. Music is another signature aspect of the Guardians franchise.
2: The music's always good.
1: Though. Yeah. Yeah. The music's always good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they
2: don't, they don't skimp and they don't, they don't. Uh... They don't short-circuit things when it comes to the music.
1: One of the most iconic scenes in the whole franchise is perhaps the opening scene in Volume 1, where Peter Quill, played by Chris Pratt, can be seen kicking monsters alongside to the beat of Come and Get Your Love by Lolly Vegas. Volume 1's soundtrack, called Awesome Mix Volume 1, even hit number one on the Billboard Hot 200. And Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 expands on this ethos of classic American music. Starting with an acoustic rendition of Radiohead's Creep, other significant choices include The Flaming Lips' Do You Realize and Florence and the Machines' Dog Days Are Over. It's no secret that the old structures of the Marvel cinematic universe are fading. Even as movie theater attendance continues to rise back to pre-pandemic levels, it's been difficult for Marvel to maintain a steady source of interest. However, consistent enthusiasm for franchises like Guardians of the Galaxy reveal a lot about what audiences are really looking for.
2: But I'm always I'm always really interested in how people decide to tell a story.
1: Yeah. It's
2: just a fascinating thing.
1: For WNUR News, I'm Paul O'Connor.
0: Mummies may seem like the stuff of museums and movies to the average Northwestern undergrad, but did you know that Northwestern has one on campus? Mika Ellison has the story. Her story.
4: This story centers around the mummy itself and brings up questions about ownership, respect, repatriation, and belonging that are being played out on campus. Last quarter, I took a class called the Politics of Display. One of our assignments was to visit the mummy, which was on display in Steinberg Library. One of the people also taking that class was Weinberg senior Katie Kim. She's an art history and political science major. Like me, she didn't know about the existence of the mummy until our assignment, which was to write a label for its display case.
3: I think my initial reaction was surprise and shock. I think it's important to note that for the purposes of this assignment, we couldn't opt out of not displaying the mummy, which I feel like is a decision that I prefer. It made me really think about the ways in which through this label, I could communicate um, that this just wasn't an object and that we could present the mummy in a way that like both respected its humanity as a, as a person um, and also like the aesthetic considerations.
4: To visit the mummy, Students enter Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary, the Graduate School of Theology on Northwestern's campus, and turn right to enter Steiberg Library. In the middle of the room, surrounded by chairs and bookshelves, is a display case with the mummified remains of a five-year-old girl. Kim says the class and the assignment made her think about how we display objects, particularly human remains.
3: I learned a lot in the class, um, but two things that really came to mind were how much a museum's display surrounding an object can influence how visitors engage with it, especially in regards to the mummy. It made me think about how a museum has a really big responsibility to provide context on the work of art. When you're also thinking about mummies or the display of human remains, it's important to balance those aesthetic considerations with respect and dignity for that person's life.
4: When I returned to Steiberg Library for this story, the mummy's display had changed. Now, instead of an informational label, there was a liturgy written by Karen Mosby, the Dean of Student Life of Garrett, and a shroud covered the display case from view. To understand the change in the mummy's display and her history in Steiberg Library, I spoke to Dr. Barry Bryant, a professor at Garrett Seminary.
2: It came to us through the Hibbard Collection Lydia Beekman-Hibbard was a wealthy Episcopalian, and she funded the procurement of, of her remains from a, a rather noted Egyptologist, Flanders Petrie, who was uh, a bit of a white supremacist. I mean, he, he believed in eugenics uh, and the superiority of the Anglo-Saxon race. Uh, and I think he uh, excavated her from the site in 1909. And I think she was uh, procured around 1911. Uh, and she was at Seabury Western for for all that time. And when they closed, uh, our library procured their library collection. Uh, and so she ended up at Garrett and was uh, down in the basement for a a good number of years until she was discovered by a curator for a block museum.
4: The block museum's 2018 exhibit, Paint the Eyes Softer, displayed the Hawara mummy, as it was known, as one of only about 900 portrait mummies known to exist. After the exhibit ended, she was returned to Garrett Seminary. Bryant says it was her presence there that began to raise questions for him about how to properly display the mummy.
2: I have a five-year-old granddaughter who was with me on a trip to the library and we walked past the case and she looked to her, glanced to her left and said, what's that? You know, and how do you explain to a five-year-old girl that that's the, the moment five remains of another five-year-old girl who is about her size and uh, probably about her weight. And I sort of took the easy way out, knowing that she probably wouldn't fully realize what a mummy is. I said, "That that's a, that's a mummy. And she said, what's a mummy? I said, well, it's, it's how uh, Egyptians uh, buried their dead.
4: Abby Holcomb, a Masters of Divinity student at Garrett, says her role on student council gave her insight into how other seminary students felt about the mummy.
5: There was a couple of students who were on board with having her there because they thought that we kind of cared for Hawara in in some ways. But for the most part, people thought it was racist and participating in colonization to have her on display.
4: Bryant said that continuing to refer to her as the mummy felt dehumanizing. So they named her Hawara.
2: Hawara is where she was discovered. That's the name of the locale. And I thought it's a way of honoring Time and place. You know, there's a place uh, in the, uh, the shrouding ceremony where it's acknowledged that uh, that's not her name. It's a name that we've chosen to give to her uh, in hopes that she and her ancestors would understand. We had no idea what her name really was or uh, to find a way that uh, uh, for a name that would perhaps be more fitting but it was a way of honoring where she was, was interred.
4: He said the question of Hawari's future is one that is unique to our time, as well as Garrett's identity as a seminary.
2: Being a seminary, you know, one of the things that uh, we try to teach our students about is uh, uh, what's, what's it like to live in a post-colonial world where even the Vatican is sending artifacts back uh, to the Orthodox church, uh, and other places. Uh, and I think that, uh, there's more of a, a sensitivity about where these artifacts came from, how they got here, uh, and do we still need to keep them? And my word to the board is, uh, uh you don't buy a human being living or dead. You, you just don't, don't buy a human being. So, uh, Uh, We changed the language, we're a custodian, we're stewards of her remains until we can figure out what do we do with her remains that's in keeping with our values.
4: Holcomb agreed and added that Hawara's history is one of the reasons a solution is so hard to find.
5: I think this is one of those things where we are so deep in so many layers of injustice that any solution is not good objectively like we've talked about sending her to this place in texas that wants to rebuild her burial site and have like an educational thing around her and even that is still like We're not laying a child's body to rest. Anything that we do has like a contract and money attached to it. Even if we send her to Texas, for instance, for a dollar, there still is this like principle of like we're exchanging something we possess and no no one owns anybody. And Mm -hmm. so like we're treating her like we own her, um, even in the best of our solutions. And so all of that has been frustrating.
4: Bryant conferred with an Egyptologist in Cairo. Who told him that if Hawara was repatriated or returned to Egypt, it was likely she would just be put into storage again. The other option was to send Hawara to the museum in Texas, where she could be displayed with more respect. Bryant considered both, but came up with another solution in the meantime.
2: I thought we've got to come up with a a plan for either finding her another resting place or finding a solution for keeping her there, and that's when I came up with the idea of shrouding. I went down to uh, the fabric shop here in Evanston and bought an ample supply of uh, Egyptian linen, and that's what she's covered in. And it's uh, a way of trying to uh, uh, to honor her humanity. And if she stays with us, she'll remain shrouded.
4: The liturgy, or the call and response Dean Mosby conducted during the shrouding ceremony, aim to tell the story of Hawara and show respect for her death.
5: So the shrouding was, yeah, our band-aid solution till we find a better one. And we wanted to make it ceremonial as like a way of honoring and respecting her. And we basically read these pieces about how we can't undo the injustice that has been done, but we're going to do our best to try to steward something that's more honorable and respectful of Hawara's Life and that something that humanizes her.
4: I asked Bryant what he thinks the best case scenario is for Hawara.
2: Oh, the, the best of all possible worlds would be for her to go go back to Hawara and be re-entombed. But there's still excavation going on there. I've just left that all in the hands of our board of trustees, which are meeting next week, in fact, to determine should we keep her uh, and just have the, the shroud... Uh, over the uh, the case, or should we find an, another uh, location for her?
4: Until then, as Hawara's fate hangs in the balance, she remains in Styberg Library. For WNUR News, I'm Mika Ellison.
0: Welcome back to WNUR News. It's 6.24 p.m. Central Time, and since it's Wednesday, that means it's time for the Sports Report. Good evening, I'm Raymond It's time for your new Sports Report for the week. The softball team closed their season out with a series win over Rutgers, clinching a year in which they won every Big Ten series they played. The first win over Rutgers also clinched the outright Big Ten title for the Wildcats, who currently sit at 19th overall in the latest rankings. The conference title is especially sweet as the second straight the team has won. The series also concluded a stretch in which the team went 15-2. The heroes of the series were Danielle Williams and Kansas Robinson. In the first game of the series, Robinson had a two-run home run and an RBI single. She followed that up by going two for three in the next game. As for Williams, she forever etched her name in program lore. In the first game, she went five innings and allowed just one hit. She then followed that up by going the distance in the third game of the series. In that game, despite six hits, she was able to keep Rutgers off the scoreboard. The win was her 17th of the season and the 100th of her illustrious career. The team begins the Big Ten tournament tomorrow against either Maryland or Iowa. The men's tennis team participated in the NCAA tournament over the weekend. The first matchup was against UCLA, and the team was able to win 4-2. The Wildcats took the doubles point easily, winning both matches. The teams were Gleb Blecher with Ivan Yatsik and Simon Bratholm with Stephen Foreman. Things seemed bleak after that, with UCLA taking the first two singles matches. However, Northwestern would bounce back, strong. Bratholm and Foreman both won their singles matches, putting UCLA on the brink. Gleb Lecker lost the first set of the clinching match, but won both the second and third sets to seal victory. The tennis team advanced to the second round for the third straight year. Their opponent was Kentucky, and at first, things appeared great for the Purple Wildcats. Bratholm and Foreman took the first doubles match, which was a great sign. Unfortunately, Northwestern then dropped the next two doubles matches, giving the point to Kentucky. In singles, Yatsuk won his match, as did Blecker. Presley-Vineman also won his match to put Northwestern one win away from advancing. They could not. The Cats collapsed at the worst possible time, with Bratholm, Foreman, and Trice Pickens all blowing one set leads. When the dust settled, Kentucky had won 4-3 and advanced to the next round. The women's lacrosse team won the Big Ten tournament in a 14-9 defeat of Maryland. The game marked the second time in a month Northwestern beat Maryland, both for conference titles, regular season and postseason. Izzy Skane, the Big Ten attacker of the year, led the way with four goals and two assists. Aaron Kweikendahl, Haley Radigan, and Maddie Taylor all had two goals apiece to help the offense along. On defense, Molly Liberty was a brick wall, saving 11 of the 20 shots that came her way. Thanks to a dominant second half in which they outscored Maryland 7-3, Northwestern was on cruise control for much of the game. The team was named the number one overall seed for the upcoming NCAA tournament. Their first opponent will be either Michigan or Central Michigan this Sunday, May 14th. The struggles for the baseball team continue as they've now lost seven of their last eight games. The Wildcats were swept by Indiana in a series where the offense never really got going. In the first game, only Steven Rostic had multiple hits and the team was shut out. The second game went to extra innings but Northwestern gave up three runs in the top of the 12th inning to seal the loss. In the third game, the offense did show up, scoring nine runs. Unfortunately, the pitching collapsed, giving up 11 runs on 10 hits and completing the series sweep. To make matters worse, the team then lost yesterday on the road to Milwaukee, a team from the Horizon League. At this point, fans of the team should be grateful that the season ends later this month. And finally, some great news for the men's basketball team. Boo Booey, the graduate student point guard, announced that he would return for one final year in Purple. Bowie was named first team All Big Ten last year after a stellar season. He averaged 17.3 points, 4.5 assists, and 1.1 steals per game last year. He was also the main offensive player on the team's improbable run to finish second in the Big Ten. Following the excellent season, Northwestern received their second ever bid in program history to March Madness. Bowie scored 22 points in the team's first-round victory over Boise State. He also scored 18 points in a valiant effort in the second-round loss to UCLA. With Bowie returning, the basketball program hopes they won't have to wait long to make a third appearance in the Big Dance. For WNUR News, I'm Brendan Prisman. A look at the weather for tonight. It should be mostly clear for the rest of the night, with temperatures dropping into the low 50s overnight. Thursday's weather should be much the same as today's, mostly sunny skies, low winds, and temperatures reaching the mid-to-high 60s. Friday, though, might require an umbrella. The temperatures will be in the mid-to-high 50s throughout much of the day. Unfortunately, there is also a 60% chance of rain Friday morning. Taking a look into the headlines, Evanston City Council has moved forward with the single-use bag tax. The bill originally appeared before the city council in January, but was pushed back due to controversy. After some reworking, the bill was passed earlier today. It includes a 10-cent tax on carry-out single-use bags, but restaurants, non-chain stores, and businesses smaller than 10,000 square feet are exempt. Thanks to these changes, the bill was passed unanimously. C.H. Johnson Consulting will conduct a study on the potential economic impact of the new Ryan Field. The firm will investigate how the stadium renovations will impact the Evanston community. There have been studies done by the university, but many Evanston residents doubt their reliability. Whether or not this independent study will agree with the findings by the university studies remains to be seen. And George Santos, the controversial New York congressman, has been hit with 13 federal charges. The charges include wire fraud, theft of public funds, and lying on his disclosure reports to the House. Prosecutors also say that Santos allegedly falsely applied for unemployment benefits. The charges are not enough on their own to remove Santos from Congress. He must be voted out by his fellow Congress members. The last Congressperson to be expelled was Ohio's Jim Traficant in 2002. Traficant was convicted of bribery, racketeering, and tax evasion. He was expelled by a vote of 420 to 1. That's all for WNUR News at 6 p.m. For more news updates and reports, follow us on Twitter at WNUR News. You can listen to these and other WNUR news stories on our website, WNUR.news. That's WNUR.news. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Our producer today is Jesse Chen, and our reporters are myself, Micah Ellison, and Paul O'Connor. From all of us here at WNUR News, thanks for listening. I'm Brendan Preisman. Catch our next newscast on Friday, May 12th at 6 p.m. Now back to scheduled programming.